So our topic for three weeks, as I've, as I've talked about, has been how God in His providence has preserved His Word and His church in church history. Namely, from Christ and the apostles all the way through the patristic period, which is the first four centuries. Then the, the Middle Ages, all the way leading up to the Reformation. And really that is, depending on who you talk to and who you consider to be kind of the birth of that, 14th, 15th, and 16th century. Tonight we conclude the discussion by looking at the Reformation. Now, hopefully many of you know that tonight is a special night. Why is tonight a special night, monk, with things around your neck? Well, in the year of our Lord, 1560, <laughs> a man named Yes. Yeah. Statements, all right. Yeah. Absolutely, it really did. 500 years ago to this day. Well done, Andrew. You're hired. 500 years ago, in case you're wondering why he's dressed really awesome with a bunch of blocks around his neck, those are not the Ten Commandments, just in case you're wondering. Those are the 95 Theses in Latin, right? Yes. So 500 years ago, tonight, tonight marks the date. It's actually pretty exciting. It's, It's amazing. You know, there's not too often... Um, that you come across an anniversary like what is happening happening tonight. And much of the Reformation began before Martin Luther. In fact, John uh, Wycliffe, and, or uh, yeah, John Wycliffe is considered the morning star of the Reformation. And he is in the 14th century. And he began copying, handwriting the Word of God, translating the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Greek, into English. And this began a number of people. John Huss was greatly touched with this. Your, your husband played him on Saturday night. And he was influenced by Wycliffe. And then you have later, about 130 years later, William Tyndale comes into the picture. And a little after this, you have Martin Luther. So tonight is indeed the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting his 95 theses on the castle door of Wittenberg in Germany. This was a crucial moment during the Reformation Specifically because unlike how the reformers before him uh, acted, he went right at the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason the church needed reform was because the Roman Catholic Church had all authority. In fact, as we'll discuss later, they alone claimed, they, they, they absolutely did not, but they claimed that they alone held the keys to the kingdom in a sense that they could determine. They determined... Who went to heaven and who went to hell? So if you were not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you were considered cursed. You were considered anathematized. You were under God's wrath and going to hell. The problem is a lot of their doctrine and teachings could not be found in Scripture. This is why Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which happened to be namely on indulgences, and again, we're going to talk about these things in a little bit, this is why this was such a drastic moment in church history. However, tonight's focus, is, although it is special, is not going to be on Martin Luther nor the Reformation as a whole as far as reformers and things like that. We will be dealing with the Reformation, but we're not going to stray away from our purpose, which is what is the role that the uh, Reformation plays in God's preservation of His Word and His church? We as a church have been intentional 
the last month uh, plus on providing all kinds of resources and opportunities for you to be educated and encouraged by the Reformers and the Reformation. And I would encourage you to continue to do so, right? So tonight is not going to be an exhaustive look. Although it is the 500th anniversary, uh, there are men much more qualified than I am to discuss the extent of a lot of these people and a lot of these doctrine issues that happened during this time. We're going to stay true to what our focus is for our study. So in defense of our topic, I would like to point out four main points tonight. We're going to discuss four main things this evening. First, we're going to discuss the importance of sola scriptura. This is one of the five solos that came, uh, uh, came as a result of the Reformation. You have uh, scripture, or you have, you were saved by grace alone, by faith alone. No, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And this is all based on scripture, God's word alone. These are the five solas. And so sola scriptura is this aspect of scripture alone is the foundation. We'll discuss what this means in a few moments. Then we're going to transition and discuss the corruption and false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Thirdly, we will discuss the importance of the translation of God's word into a vernacular language or a common universal language for the people in different countries. And then we will finalize with how we apply this discussion to our day and bring a challenge for revival in our nation, in this world, and in the church. The Reformation is crucial to our topic because it was during this time that the church found its way back to God's word as the only authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Reformation kindled the fire of missionary endeavors for years to come. It led to incredible hymn writing. It changed congregational singing. It led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. And it is the celebration of a theological, ecclesiastical, or church, right, study of church and cultural transformation. So before we dive in and and begin with number one, let's just bow our heads and submit this time to the Lord. Father, we ask that you would speak truth, that you'd protect our mouths and our minds, our eyes and our ears from error. I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us tonight. What an incredible, incredible memory and anniversary we have this evening, Lord. Uh, But I pray that we'd be even more excited and full of joy and passion because the gospel has not changed. And your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Has the power to pierce the heart, transform lives with the Spirit. So we ask tonight, Spirit, that you would speak according to your word. Challenge and encourage us tonight for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, at the heart of the Reformation was sola scriptura. A lot could be said about the issues taking place, but it really boils down to this point alone. So I want to give you a couple definitions of sola scriptura, just to make sure that everybody understands what that means. And then I want to discuss briefly what it is and what it isn't. All right? Here's the definition. Sola Scriptura means that the Scriptures alone, say alone, the Scriptures alone are sufficient to function as the infallible rule of faith for the church. James White gives a pretty thorough one. In fact, I'd encourage you to read his book, Scripture 
alone, or even the debate on uh, Roman Catholicism. He's a, he's a very brilliant man, and he defines sola scriptura as this. It means uh, that the scriptures are not in need of any supplement. Their authority comes from the nature as God-breathed revelation. Their authority is not dependent upon man, church, or council. The scriptures are self-consistent, self-interpreting, and self-authenticating. And the Christian church looks to the scriptures alone as the only infallible and sufficient rule of faith. The church is always subject to the word and is constantly being transformed thereby. Amen. The London Baptist Confession of 1689. There's two solid confessions. You've got the Westminster and the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Uh, really only minute details that have to do with baptism. Uh, both of them theologically are sound. And ultimately this is not the word of God. We're about to go to the word. But I want to show you what godly men have labored over. And, and a confessional that they put together based on the word of God that can be very helpful. And if you remember we've talked about... The purpose of these confessionals, the purpose of councils and, and men gathering together was always to protect the church against false teaching, namely, right? And so these don't ever determine what is truth uh, as far as all of a sudden man gets to determine, okay, now since we've approved it, this is what the Bible means or this should be included. But rather they come in because of false teaching and heresies and uh, wolves with sheep's clothing and they do this to preserve and protect and purify the church. But the London Baptist Confession of 1689 states this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary, we're talking about this next week, for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed to the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. In other words... The Bible is incredibly clear on the primary things having to do with faith, salvation, God's character, God's glory. And in the things that the Bible may not be black and white on, right? The encouragement is that we use the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God, to make wise, prudent decisions. So it's thorough in the things it needs to be thorough in. And then there's prudence and wisdom and guidance by the Holy Spirit to allow us to determine other things based on the Word of God. I'll explain more of that in a second. It goes on to say this, that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. My dad always, always says this, the best interpreter of Scripture is what? Scripture, right? And so, therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture... It must be searched by other places that speak more clearly in Scripture. In other words, uh, in fact, Dad, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Adrian Rogers who was having a conversation with the man, right? 
And the man said, well, the, the Bible says this. And Adrian looks at him and says, no, that's what that verse says. The Bible has a whole lot more to say about it. It was Adrian, correct? Henry Blackaby, not Adrian Rogers. I'm glad you corrected me. I think I've been saying Adrian Rogers when I quote that. All right, Henry Blackaby. That's very wise. And so here's the reality. You'll see this with the Roman Catholic Church tonight. Many doctrines and teachings and religions and all these false gospels have been birthed out of verses, not the Word of God. And you should never build an entire doctrine or way of thinking based on a verse in Scripture. What does the whole Word of God say about it? So finally, in specific context to our topic tonight, I want to read one more part of the 1689 London Baptist Confession. It states this, that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, and doctrines of men, private spirits, are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally and fully resolved. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura is rejected by the Roman Catholic Church. It's, it's, it's prevalent to our discussion tonight because the Roman Catholic Church, again, was not only running the church, it was running basically the society, the empire at this point. It had a lot of influence in the political realm, in the civil realm. So it had its fingers leaking to all types of things, and it claimed that it was the authority, not Scripture. Scripture was Scripture if the Roman Catholic Church determined it to be. They do, however, Roman Catholics, have some false assumptions about what we mean when we say Sola Scriptura. So again, Dr. James White is helpful here in explaining what we mean and what we don't mean when we say Sola Scriptura. I'm just going to give bullet points of this, but this should be helpful. In small groups, you'll have these bullet points. Sola Scriptura does not mean the following. Sola Scriptura is not a claim that the Bible contains all knowledge. You're not going to find uh, breaking news about science and music theory and things of the like in the Bible. It doesn't claim to have the knowledge of all things. It claims uh, to portray the one who does have knowledge and created all things. Sola Scriptura is also not a claim that the Bible is an exhaustive catalog of all religious knowledge. Right? You look at the end of the Gospel of John. What does John say? And Jesus also did many more things. That if it were to be written in books, the world itself could not contain the books that would speak of these things. We don't know what color Peter's hair was. We don't know how many days they were out fishing uh, afterwards before Jesus came back. It's not an exhaustive list of all religious things either. You also look at Sola Scriptura and realize that it is not a denial. This is important, especially in the Roman Catholic conversation. Sola Scriptura is not a denial of the church's authority to teach God's truth. The church does have the authority to teach God's truth. They're commanded to do so. You see James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers because you'll receive a stricter judgment. You see that the qualifications for an overseer in 1 Timothy 3 is that they must be able to teach. Right? So there is a command given to teach and to preach these things. Paul gives that command to Timothy. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Right? And so we do know that the church has the authority to teach God's truth. Sola Scriptura is also not a denial that God's word has at times been verbally spoken. 
through prophets, through Jesus, even to the apostles. It does reject that there is new revelation today. Sola Scriptura is not a rejection of every kind of tradition either. Not all tradition is bad, but all tradition is subject to the truth, God's Word. And finally, Sola Scriptura is not a denial of the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding the church. If we did not have the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to interpret the truth, and therefore we would be lost, and the church would be Ichabod. So now we look at what Sola Scriptura is. It is the sole infallible rule of faith. Sola Scriptura means that no other revelation is needed for the church. You know, I, that, you have the conversations uh, about, you know, you, you hear about near-death experiences or people have died, gone to heaven, their movies have been made, books have been written. Uh, I, I reject that. Uh, and, and the reason is, why? What's the, why do we need that? You know, and, and it becomes a platform for all of a sudden, oh, now people's faith are being increased. What do you mean? Because I look in, in the book of Luke and you see the rich man and Lazarus, and what happens? Lazarus and the rich man die. The rich man is in Hades. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And Lazarus says, Abraham, have Lazarus dip out his finger, put some cool water on my tongue to keep the tormenting and the pain down. And then also, go back and tell my father's household because I have brothers. Tell them the truth about this place. And what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. And the man says, no. The rich man says, no, no, no. But if someone raises from the dead, then they will believe. And Abraham says this. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone raises from the dead. Meaning this. A near-death experience cannot increase someone's faith any more than what we have in the Word of God already. And this is truth. What would be the purpose of that? Why do we need it? And by the way, if it does happen and there's something new, it should be written down and considered scripture. But we know that the word of God is closed. It's a closed canon. So sometimes we like these types of things because they give us fuzzy feelings. And in the Roman Catholic Church, you hear about stories and a boy who's walking down the street and all of a sudden he hears an angel singing by this, t- by this thing and the Virgin Mary descends from heaven. They have all kinds of new revelations, even as recent as the last 10 years. And they write and record these things and the church is still building doctrine based on these random things that happen to nuns or little boys or priests. But who gave these men and these women the authority to do these things and write things down and now all of a sudden build doctrines off of it? It's dangerous. And what's amazing is the Roman Catholic Church says Sola Scriptura cannot be the final authority because who validates the Scripture? But they're faced with the same issue. Who's validating the boy? Who's validating the the nun? Who's validating the priest? Scripture is the authority. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. So we've looked at some confessionals and some theologians today. We've discussed what Sola Scriptura is and isn't. But what does the Bible say? Right? Because who cares about all this? What does the Bible say? Well, let's begin with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 17. If you have a Bible, we're going to live here in some part next week. But go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. I hope you're buckled in. We are just getting started tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul's last letter. He's in Rome. He's about to be martyred under Nero. You guys remember him from two weeks ago. And he says this to Timothy, who is the lead shepherd and elder commissioned in Ephesus. Beginning in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with what? The sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's a primary issue. All Scripture, say all, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Let me remind you that when this is being written, Peter has affirmed in 2 Peter that all of Paul's letters are to be considered Scripture. Paul also affirms Luke, and you have Luke who also affirms other Scriptures as well. So we know that here is to be considered all of Scripture. We can today look at this and say all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. It's breathed out by God. God breathed it out. It's profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Listen, now in the context of modern day revelations and dreams and prophecies and encounters, tell me why, when the word of God says here, verse 17, that the man of God may be what? Complete. Equipped for every good work. In other portions of the New Testament, you see the same thing, and it says this, lacking in nothing. Scripture is all we need to be complete and fully equipped. Paul points to the origin of Scripture as God himself in this passage. He claims that the authority of Scripture is indeed God's authority. That the Scripture contains everything needed for life and godliness. What else do you need? And salvation, what else do you need? So the man of God may be complete. Not, there's nothing lacking here. In other words, if another source or tradition were necessary, don't you think Paul in his closing letter to Timothy, who's going to now shepherd and counsel the coming generations, don't you think he would have directed Timothy and us to some other source in order that we may be complete? But he doesn't. However, perhaps the strongest passage that deals with Sola Scriptura in a case against the Roman Catholic Church is found in Matthew chapter 15, 1 through 9. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. This is an example from Christ himself. While you're turning there, I want to set the stage, okay? As we will see later, the papacy, the, the Roman authority, the lineage of popes, right? They claim... This is important. They claim to have authority beyond Scripture and over Scripture. Specifically because the apostolic succession from Peter and the tradition of men, which we'll talk about later. They would use Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2.2 as an example. When Paul says this to Timothy. This is important before we read Matthew 15. Paul says to Timothy, What you have heard from me, heard, in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. They will take this verse and see it's not just what was written, but also what these men heard. And then they look at 1 Timothy 3.15 that talks about how the church is the pillar and support of truth. And they would see, see? They would say, see, the church is the authority. It's the pillar of truth, the support. But look at those words. What does a pillar do? A pillar holds something up. What does support do? It supports something else. What is supporting it is greater than them. The church is the pillar and support of truth. Yes, amen. And so they would then base, you know, Paul's words earlier on, it is not just what's written, but also the tradition of men, what Paul has spoken. So let's look at the tradition of men and what Jesus says about this a couple decades before Paul writes this. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 through 9, it says this. Then the Pharisees 
and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Interesting. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? (laughs) For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Jesus says this, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Honestly, I don't even need to explain that. That, I mean, Jesus just... There's there's nothing more that needs to be said about that. So I'm going to leave that there in regards to Jesus dropping the bomb on what is authority and what isn't. The word of God, not tradition of men. And a discussion from the word of God, from the mouth of God. All right. This leads us into our second part of tonight, which is the corruption and false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, lest you pause here and go, I don't really know many Roman Catholics, and so this is really important for me. I'm I'm firm in my belief. It doesn't really matter what they believe. I just feel confident. Don't be lazy with that mindset, number one. Have intelligence. Be able to speak and defend your faith, right? Know why you believe what you believe. This is why we've been doing this for eight weeks, and we're going to continue to do this. Second of all, I would encourage you to pay attention because many of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, though they may look different, the same heart issue is actually practiced in many evangelical or Protestant churches today. So we're going to discuss this. So let's all be willing, myself included, to look into a mirror here and see what part of this really influences and convicts me. Luther, along with many reformers, had many issues against the Roman Catholic Church. Some being of the apostolic succession and authority of the papacy. The papacy. The practice of tradition which is not found in Scripture, justification, not by faith alone, and indulgences. These are a few issues that Luther and many other reformers had with the papacy. Now, in the context of sola scriptura and the role of the Scriptures, it is important to understand where Roman Catholicism stands. The Roman Catholic Church does not believe that a document, namely the Word of God, can be self-attesting. It rather requires external approval and authentication from an infallible church. Did you catch that? Now, it's ironic that the papacy can claim inerrancy over the very word of an infallible God. Especially since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's also interesting is that the Roman Catholic Church didn't take a stance on what Scripture is until the Council of Trent. Officially. So are we to believe that the church had no canon for over 1,500 years? And it was all just, maybe it's the word, maybe it's not. The Roman Catholic Church hasn't decided yet for 1,500 years. J.I. Packer, who's awesome, sums this up well by saying this. This is is good. Here's an analogy and example for you. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity. Newton did not create gravity, but simply recognized it. So if the papacy, if the papacy has the only authority to determine scripture, tradition, and faith, 
then who validates the papacy? Are they really willing to say that the word of God is not infallible, that they are? Because who's going to validate the scriptures? Well, who's going to validate the papacy? Especially if they're going against God's word and Jesus' mouth. If they say that God is the one who validates scripture, tradition, and faith, then how can they reject the sole authority of the word of God? And if they're not willing to say that God is the one who determines such things, then how dare they say that they have more authority than God? You see, then, that the Roman Catholic Church rejects sola scriptura by replacing it with sola ecclesia, the church alone. Which is just as much, listen, is just as much of a self-authenticating authority as sola scriptura. Their core of their belief still requires a self-authentication, which is what they deny the scripture is able to produce. So 500 years ago today, Martin Luther posted 95 theses against the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, mainly of indulgences was his point with these 95 theses. He posted them on the cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now at this time, just so you can know what's happening and why he posted these, Pope Leo X had an expensive taste, both personally and for the buildings of the Catholic Church and his area. Hence come in Raphael and Michelangelo. So he needed to fund his expensive taste and growing and building beautiful buildings in his home. And so Albert of Mainz, who was a young bishop, capitalized on this and was allowed with the papal blessing from Pope Leo X to now sell indulgences for past, present, and future sins. In fact, it was around this time as well that you were now allowed to not only do it for your own sins, but you could now release dead family members from hundreds of years or even thousands of years of torment and purgatory. Now, the idea that salvation could be purchased bothered Luther and other reformers greatly. That is the extreme, that's as extreme as you can get when it comes to works-based salvation. And pause. Indulgences still exist today, by the way. This goes to a new level beyond just purgatory. Or the fact that Roman Catholics do not believe that Christ's atonement was sufficient for all whom he would save. That good works were needed in order to pay for sin and eliminate wrath. Because indulgences say that you can pay money in often massive amounts. Sometimes putting people on the street. I I mean, listen, you, you find somebody that you've manipulated their entire life. And you say, if you give me all you have, you will never have to pay for a single moment of wrath in hell or purgatory. You'll go straight. You can guarantee yourself eternal life. Think of how many people were deceived. What do you want? I'll give it all to you. Not so they could gain Christ. So they could avoid wrath. You see the issue here with the gospel. So October 31st, 1517, Luther spoke out. Now, October 31st was All Souls Day. All Hallows Eve. Everybody say with me, not Halloween. Now, I really would love to discuss my biblical interpretation and biblical worldview opinion on Halloween tonight. Uh, But because it has nothing to do with our topic, unfortunately, I cannot. Maybe we can do a biblical worldview, how a Christian ought to act and think towards Halloween in the spring. Anyways, Halloween, like other things in this world, have been totally 
taken over by American propaganda and culture and money and all types of stuff. But it is evil at its very core and was totally changed from what was a very holy day in holy practice. Now this day, the reason Luther picked October 31st is because the very next day, which began the calendar for the new year, would bring in pilgrims from all over because in the new year they would come and travel and then pay indulgences or work and do penance to be able to take hundreds or even thousands of years off of their time in purgatory. So Luther comes on October 31st, the day before this would happen, post this in Latin, so the common man can understand it, in order to have debates and discussions among those in the Roman Catholic leadership. That was his goal. Ironically, some of his students came, saw it, took it down, made copies, took advantage of the printing press, translated it, and within two weeks, it was almost in every city around. <laughs> Amazing. It went, as uh, I think Chris said on Sunday night in the, the live Facebook thing, it went viral. This is, this is Reformation viral. Now, perhaps at the core of Rome's corruption was indeed their understanding of an apostolic succession that gives authority to the Pope. Where, you may ask, do they get this doctrine and why do we reject it? I'll, I'll just say that again. The, the main foundation of Rome's corruption really comes down to this apostolic succession that they believe that gives authority to the Pope, the same authority that Christ had on earth, by the way. We'll talk about that in a second. The term vicar, right, because the Pope is called the vicar of Christ. This term comes from the Latin word vicarious, which means instead of. In the Catholic Church, the vicar is the representative of a higher-ranking official with all of the same authority and power that the official has. So calling the Pope the vicar of Christ implies that he has the same power and authority that Christ had over the church. That's where they get this papacy and apostolic authority and succession today. Where do they get it, you may ask? Well, Peter's believed to be the first vicar of Christ, the first pope. And this is based off of two main passages. First, and Matthew 16. Let's turn to Matthew 16. This would be their main one. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, the first pope, joking, replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, amen, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Ironically, two chapters later, Jesus says the same thing to all the disciples, by the way. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic belief here is that Christ was handing over his church and his authority to Peter. This passage for Rome institutes the first pope. At this moment, Peter became the first pope. They also use John chapter 21. I'll read this, so if you want to flip fast, it's fine. But John 21, beginning in verse 15, it says this. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, what? Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now this command, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. This according to Rome was Jesus setting Peter apart as a pastor for all Christians in a manner different from the other apostles. Now, James White gives us some important questions to consider here about the papacy and Peter being the first pope. The questions we must ask are this, because remember, well, Matthew 16 says that Jesus gave the keys to Peter. Matthew 16 says it. The whole Bible does not say that. What is the context? What is Jesus saying here? So there's other questions we must ask ourselves. In other words, does the New Testament as a whole lead us to believe that Peter was considered the head of the church? That's one question we must ask. The second question we must ask, was Peter viewed as the vicar of Christ on earth? Number three, did Christians of his day or even the other apostles view him this way? A fourth question to consider, did the apostles instruct people to obey Peter as the Pope? Another question to ask, does the Bible even teach anything about this kind of office where Christians are to look and submit? Let's begin answering these questions by looking at Luke 22. Go to Luke 22 with me. If you're alive, say hey. Hey, he's for horses. Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. This is right after the Lord's Supper. Remember, we're asking the question, has Peter been given authority that is greater than the other apostles? Well, in Luke 22, beginning 24, a dispute also arose among them. Remember what this is? As to which of them was to be regarded as what? The greatest. Now pause. Surely, if Peter was the Pope, because this is after Matthew 16 account, and don't call Jesus Shirley, surely... If this is a question at this moment, and Peter was indeed the vicar of Christ and the first pope, the question is settled. The answer is done before it even comes up, right? This would be an opportunity for Jesus, now in front of all the disciples, to be made very clear. Actually, yes, there is someone among you who is the greatest, and that is the person that I gave the keys to the kingdom in. He is the first pope. He has all authority. He is basically me when I leave. And every person after him will be me when they leave. Rather, Jesus said in verse 25, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. This is plural, assigned to you. That you, plural, may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Not that you would sit on a throne on the earth. 
and say people can go to heaven or hell and create doctrines out of thin air so that the cathedrals can grow and be beautiful and you can stuff your pockets with money. Surely if Peter was the greatest in the Pope, this would have come up here. We also see nowhere in the epistles anyone referring to Peter as a Pope. Never. In fact, in the rest of the New Testament, we don't see even a hint of Peter's supremacy. Peter, in his own letter, in his own words, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 2, calls himself a fellow elder. And if Peter was the first bishop of Rome and the Pope, then why was there no mention of this in Paul's letter to the Romans? And why was Peter missing from Rome just before he was killed? And why does Paul say that no one supported him at his trial in Rome around 55 or 57 AD? Why did Peter himself not write a letter to Rome? Paul claims in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, that he was in no way inferior to the very super, super apostles. So Paul's saying, none of the super apostles, you'd think of Peter, James, and John probably, I'm not inferior to any of them. Well, if Peter was the Pope, <laughs> and Peter was going to, by the way, by the way, by the way, in 2 Peter chapter 3, if Peter was going to say that, Paul was speaking the very word of God and being carried along in the Holy Spirit and is to be considered all of his letters like other scripture. If Peter's the Pope, homeboy isn't okay with that. Right? Who does Paul? Paul is not inferior to, I'm the Pope! But that's not what Peter says, that's not what Paul says. See this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You also see it in Galatians 2.7. Paul says that he was entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, whereas Peter was to the circumcised. If if Peter's the Pope, Jews and Gentiles have nothing to do with this. No mention here of a Pope or overall authority. It's also here that Paul rebukes Peter publicly for not walking in accord with the truth of the gospel. Hey, you find some cardinal or bishop and have him walk into a council where the Pope is and openly rebuke him in front of everybody saying that he is not walking in accord with the truth of the gospel. If Peter's the Pope, Galatians has a whole different chapter that we're missing about how Peter put Paul in his place. And here's how we know this. Remember when Peter said to the Lord, don't say these things. You're not going to be killed. You're not going to do this. What does Jesus, who has the authority, say to inferior Peter? Get behind me, Satan. If Peter is the fly, if Peter is the vicar of Christ, and now Paul comes up and says, hey, you're not walking to court. Get behind me, Satan. Acts is another clear example of the omission of the very papacy of Peter in the beginning of the church. Because in chapter 20, verse 28... Paul is talking to the Ephesian leaders and use the same kind of language that Jesus did to Peter in John 20 when he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, lambs, sheep, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, which Peter said, I'm a fellow elder, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. If this was Peter's job, Paul would have mentioned it. But what about Matthew 16? Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom. So what's the point of this passage? All right, here's here's the mirror that we're now looking into. Because we do this often. What's the purpose of Matthew 16 in this context? The purpose of this passage of scripture is that Jesus is the Messiah. Who do you say I am? 
Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus will build his church. Notice he doesn't say Peter will build his church. He says, I will build my church upon this rock. The issue happening in Matthew 16 is not that keys are being passed. It is that Jesus is Lord. And he will build his church. And no gates of hell will prevail over it. We we tend to take passages that have a central point and elevate things found in the text that are beyond the central issue. To say that this passage about Peter becoming a second Christ, so to speak, and setting up an office of authority where apostolic authority will continue, which is, by the way, when this conversation is happening in Matthew 16, it's 1,500 miles from Rome, right? Rather, we see Christ here is affirming his deity and authority. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ is the one who says he will build his church. He never delegates this power to Peter. By claiming the title of Vicar of Christ, the reigning Pope is in fact promising to do what Christ promised. But the Pope isn't Christ. Hebrew shows us that Christ is the great high priest, not the Pope. The Pope will claim that the papacy and leaders are the mediator. Hebrews rejects this. There's one mediator. It's Christ. You also see this in 1 Timothy 2.5. Paul says to Timothy, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Again, why is Peter affirming all of Paul's letters if Peter is the mediator now between man and God? The Pope is not the mediator for man and God. Christ is. And today he does this through the Holy Spirit, as we see in Romans 8 and Ephesians. It is the apostolic authority of the papacy and the Pope being the vicar of Christ that has led to so many man-made sinful traditions that has corrupted the church. This is the main issue. Mary's not the issue. She's a consequence of the issue. The penance system isn't the issue. It's a consequence of the real issue. Praying for the dead is not the issue. It's not where we defeat Roman Catholicism. It's a consequence of the issue. Indulgences as horrid and mind-boggling as they are, you don't fight the battle there. It's a consequence. New revelation, justification by works, transubstantiation, the list goes on. All of these things flow from a false understanding of who gets the authority. And the heart of the fight against Roman Catholicism is sola scriptura. And this is why reformers lay down their lives. Now before I get to point three and move a lot faster, Jesus does indeed predict a vicar in the sense of a replacement for his physical presence here on earth. But it's not a priest, a high priest, a bishop, or a pope. Who is it? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> Good job. And you grew up Roman Catholic. John fourteen twenty six declares, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, not Peter, and remind you of everything I've said to you. John 14, 16 through 18 proclaims, Jesus says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Not Peter. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, not through the Pope, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ's replacement on earth. The Holy Spirit is our counselor our teacher, and guide into all truth. This leads to our third discussion tonight. And that is on the importance of the translation of the word of God into the language of the common people. Now, I spoke thoroughly about this on Sunday night during a Facebook Live event about the Reformation. 
I want to highlight a few portions of that here to make very clear our third point tonight. Remember, we need to pause now and look at our purpose. The discussion at hand is, how did God and His providence preserve His Word and His church? And tonight it's in the context of the Reformation. So we've looked at the cry for sola scriptura during the Reformation. We've seen the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And by the way, you're asking where the suffering is? All around. The Roman Catholics are murdering all kinds of people who are speaking out against the church. So now we answer in one way how God preserved his word in church. And that was through the translation of his word into other languages and it's spreading among the nations. Luther translated into German, Zwingli into Swiss. There are many others who are crucial for other languages. But I want to focus tonight on William Tyndale. Now, if you listened Sunday night or you came to the Reformation event Saturday, you already know some of this, Okay. But for the sake of first-timers and those who will listen online, it's important to cover a few of those highlights. And for those of you who have already heard it, it's a great reminder again. I'm not going to go over all of it. But born in 1494, you have William Tyndale. Attended Oxford and Cambridge. Became schoolmaster at a man named John Walsh's house in Gloucestershire, England in 1522. He was 28 years old. Anybody in here 28? I used to be. Anybody 28? Nice, Heather. Imagine Heather's a man 500 years ago with a beard. That's William. <laughs> William spent most of his time studying Erasmus's Greek New Testament that had just been printed in 1516. Tyndale himself knew eight languages. Whoa! How many of your kids, you adults, have grown children who know like, the know eight languages? No. He knew Latin, Greek, German, French, Hebrew, Spanish, Italian, and English. Where at the age of 28, you may ask, did he find time to do this? There was not Netflix or laziness as we know it today or iPhones or I deserve everything and just give me all the stuff. Mommy won't let me play on the computer, blah, 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 blah. Gag my brains out. It's like 60 hours of entertainment that the average teenager and young adult spends a week. Which means in eight days, you could read the whole Bible. That's, by the way, how they knew eight languages. Instead of the scripture. That ought to make us vomit our brains out tonight, honestly. Tyndale would discuss the doctrine of scripture over dinner at Walsh's house when learned men would come. It was at one of these dinners that a man told him, alright, remember what's happening in the day. A man is at dinner... And says to William Tyndale, who's growing and increasing and teaching the truths of Scripture against Roman Catholicism. And this man looks at Tyndale and says, we would be better off without God's law than the Pope. And Tyndale, who's enraged and overcome with godly zeal, stands and bursts. This was the end of the dinner for him. And says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life, I will cause every boy who works a farm... To know more of the scriptures than the Pope. This is what led to William having a desire to translate the word of God. Now the problem with the Roman Catholic Church and the darkness in England was just this. Only educated men could read the scriptures. And really educated men didn't even read or say the scriptures. Because according to Roman Catholic doctrine... They did not have the divine grace that was needed to understand the scriptures. So actually, 
it was in one way going against the Roman Catholic Church for anyone to read the Word of God and try to interpret it themselves. They do not have that authority. Therefore, you can understand why somebody like Tyndale or Wycliffe long before Huss, Luther, Zwingli would say, we need to get the Bible into people's hands. This was the issue. Tyndale's work in the New Testament was not a popular one in England, though he pleaded with King Henry VIII to make it a vernacular translation in all of England. Like Wycliffe, 130 years earlier, his work was considered heresy and he was considered a heretic. Wycliffe was killed for this very thing, along with most of his handwritten copies of the Bible in English being destroyed. Wycliffe translated the Latin Vulgate, okay? Tyndale translated the original Greek and portions of the Hebrew Old Testament before he was killed. Tyndale ended up in Worms, Germany, where he translated there the New Testament English. These New Testaments began being smuggled into England. And by October of the same year, this English copy of the New Testament had been banned in London. However, because of the printing press and common men who were willing to risk their lives, over 3,000 copies were already smuggled in, being circulated and read and taught. Tyndale ended up revising this edition in 1534, which it happens to be his prized work. Before Tyndale died, he also translated the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Joshua through Chronicles and Jonah. This became the basis for the Geneva Bible of 1557, In the King James Version of 1611, nine-tenths of the New Testament is based on Tyndale's translation. Now, the reason the Roman Catholic Church was so against the translation of the Bible into English, we know this, you can assume this based on what we've discussed, is because they feared that now any man could read this book and then would find the error in the church. Think about this. The Roman Catholic Church was burning the Word of God. And anathematizing, cursing people, since they have the keys of the kingdom, sending people to hell who would read it in English or try to interpret it for themselves. Holy smokes. Some of the reasons were because that the Roman Catholic Church deemed the English language to be crude and unworthy of the language of God's word, but that was a masking issue just so they could keep it. They feared that if each man had the word of God in his own language, they would then become an interpreter of the Bible, would go astray from the Roman Catholic Church. Because it was the Roman Catholic Church's tradition that only the priests were given the divine grace to understand the scriptures. However, the heart of the issue with Tyndale and other reformers and their doctrine was that of justification by faith and the many errors in the ecclesiastical church issues of the church. You think of the sacramental structure and the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. People would not find in the scripture many of these practices and sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church was deeming doctrine and necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church's power and control over the people and even over the state would be lost. The main three issues here that the Reformers were concerned about was the priesthood, the papacy, purgatory, and penance. So Tyndale, to expose the deeds of darkness, began translating and teaching and correcting the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. He lived as a fugitive for 12 years, was imprisoned his last year in the Netherlands where he suffered cruel conditions. It was in jail that he began to preach to his jailer. Many of you know this and anyone else who would listen. So much so that before his death, the jailer was converted. So was the jailer's daughter and so were others in his household. On October 6, 1536, Tyndale was tied to a stake. He was strangled, 
and burned. Tyndale, like many others, were crucial in the preservation of God's word and the crease of his church. So we now see the reason that the reformers wanted to bring the word of God in the coming language. And this was the way, sola scriptura, that they would expose the deeds of darkness and get right to the heart of the issue with the Roman Catholic Church. And they did indeed do that. This leads us to our final point tonight. And that is this. What does all of this mean for you, AJ, and Melissa, and Jake, and Caroline, and Jordan, and Stephanie, and Heather, and everybody else in here? Right? What does this mean for us today? What's the challenge? Are the same issues occurring? Are they not? What are we to do today with our faith? What does it mean to be radical in America in 2017? Well, if you remember where we're going with our discussion this year, you'll remember that we are building a case for having a confident faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, that is based on the word of God alone. We're going to be teaching in the coming weeks that the Bible is self-authenticating, and through the proclamation of the word of God, man by the Holy Spirit can receive faith by grace alone. This word gives us faith, That is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Therefore, our entire worldview should be based on the very word of God. That's where we're going. So listen to me. The mirror, right? We become just like the Pharisees. We become just like Marcion and the Gnostics. We become just like Arius and the Roman Catholic Church. The moment we try to justify anything outside of Scripture. We're no different. This year's teachings have massive implications for our life. Tonight concludes our lessons through history. And this is now where we begin to put the rubber to the road. This is where we begin moving forward to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves if we are being obedient to all that Christ has commanded. Ephesians tells us to expose the deeds of darkness... Are you exposing deeds of darkness in your life? It also says to speak the truth in love. Are you speaking the truth in love? It also says that as we've been reconciled to God, we are now called to the ministry of reconciliation. Have you been ministering to those around you in the case of reconciling people to God? It says we're ambassadors for Christ. Have you been an ambassador for Christ? It says to make disciples of all nations. Have you been making disciples? Today's generation is no different than any other generation that has come before it. Now, I obviously don't mean in every aspect of the word like we have smartphones today. They didn't obviously 500 years ago. But when you get to the word of God, the issues with the church, the heart problems of sin, nothing has changed. We live in the midst of persecution and suffering today and all kinds of false teachings. And it differs depending where you are. I I said two weeks ago, the issue in America is not necessarily persecution and suffering. It's that some of the greatest false teachings exist here. You've got some of the strongest persecution and sufferings in the world and some of the strongest false teachings and false gospels right here in our home front. We've discussed for a number of weeks how God has used, listen to me, how God has used giants of the faith to have huge impacts for the preservation of His Word and His church. But let's be very clear. If it wasn't for the collection of the saints As a whole, the apostolic period, the patristic period, the Middle Ages, and the Reformation would have looked a lot different. Yeah, Tyndale translated the Word of God, but it was common men who smuggled these thousands of copies illegally into England. Tyndale wasn't responsible for 3,000 copies being in England. 
He translated them. It was common men who smuggled them in and risked their lives, for which many of them were caught and died. 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 are crucial here. There are no sidelines in the Christian faith. Jesus said, anyone who does not gather with me, what? Scatters. Anyone who's not working with me is what? Against me. 1 Corinthians 12, the eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need for you, nor can the foot look himself in the mirror and say, there's no need for me. Ephesians 4 tells us that the body builds itself up in love when what? Each member is working properly. God's preservation of his word in his church is all about fulfilling the gospel. And how does God fulfill the gospel? Through the means of fallen men, and God gets glory for it. If you are a believer, if you've been called into relationship, right relationship with Christ, you have just signed up for a battle team. There's no excuse to sit in the stands and cheer people on. That is not Christianity. That is not radical discipleship. That does not show a life that loves Christ more than anything else. It does not show the fruit of the Spirit. That should cause you to look in the mirror and say, Have I been transformed? Have my eyes been opened to the truth of the gospel? And we ask ourselves, what is the gospel? Because God's preservation of his word and his church is really about God's promise to fulfill the gospel. And the gospel is God displaying his glory through redeeming a people that he chose before the foundation of the world through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That all who would confess him as Lord, turn and repent from their sin, would be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what does this have to do with the preservation of God's word in his church? What does all this the last three weeks have to do with the patristic, you know, the patristic period, the middle, the middle ages, the Reformation? What does this have to do with the gospel? Revelation 5.9 Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, listen, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And again in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. So part of the gospel that God will accomplish is that he redeems a people from every tribe, every tongue and language, every race, and every nation. But how is this accomplished? Jesus gave the instruction in Matthew 28 when he says, All authority has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. But how? baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded. So the gospel is fulfilled in part by the preservation of God's word and his church. How? Through Christ's disciples going to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and teaching the word of God. The word of God is central. The word of God must be proclaimed according to Romans 10 for people to be saved. Because how can they call on him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? How will someone preach unless someone is sent? There, th- this was the motivation and heart of people smuggling Bibles into London. 
How will they know? How will they hear? How will they be saved from the corruption unless someone sends and goes and teaches and preaches and they can read and understand and hear the gospel? Therefore, people must know and hear the word in their own language. But they also must know what Jesus taught of how they were saved. By grace, through faith in Christ. Therefore, today, us, in closing, we must be willing to lay down our life for the sake of the gospel and for the preservation of God's word in this church. We do this because Christ has all authority and he told us that he will build this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Luther and Tyndale and the Reformation, like many other men and women in every generation, are beautiful examples of God's sovereign grace actively defeating the devil and illuminating the dark places of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ through the preserving of his word and the increase of his church. When we do this, we must understand that we will face false teaching head on, and we should. And that can very well lead to the joy of suffering that God has promised for those who love and obey him. Tonight in small groups, you're going to discuss questions based on tonight's teaching and lesson and based on the last three weeks and really the last eight weeks as we end this topic and now shift into expositional preaching on the self-authenticating nature of Scripture in 2 Corinthians. Where does faith come from? Because we've, listen, the bet, not because of me, because of the facts. The best case for any reliability in all of the world goes to God's word. There's nothing more reliable from a human standpoint. And yet we've argued this whole time. These last eight weeks cannot make anybody be saved. Not a single part of it. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Unless God comes in and shines in your heart, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, and reveals the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, you are dead in your sin and trespasses and under the wrath of God. Therefore, we now teach, where does faith come from? And what must you do to be saved? Which was a common cry throughout all the Gospels and throughout Acts.